Welcome to Jesse War Radio. Jesse War Radio is available from jessiewar.com. New episodes are posted every Friday. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jessiewar and follow us on Twitter at jessiewar. All one word. Thank you for tuning in. Andrew Philip Smith was born in Wales and attended the University College of Swansea. He now lives with his wife, Teresa, and son, Dylan, in Dublin, Ireland, after long stints in the London area and the Sierra Nevada foothills of California. He is the author of several books and articles on Gnosticism, early Christianity, and esoterica. His books include Dictionary of Gnosticism, The Gnostics' History, Tradition, Scriptures, Influence, The Lost Sayings of Jesus, Annotated and Explained, Gnostic Writings of the Soul, and The Gospel of Philip. He is also the editor of The Gnostic, a journal of Gnosticism, Western esotericism, and spirituality. He wrote the forewords for New Nightingale, New Rose, Poems from the Divan of Hafiz, The Quatrains of Omar Khayyam, Three Translations of the Rubaiyat, and Don't Forget P.D. Ospensky's Life of Self-Remembering by Bob Hunter. He's been studying the Gospel of Thomas and the Fourth Way teachings since the late 1980s, and has given a number of presentations and readings on the Gnostics and other esoteric and poetical works. His current projects include biographies of Alan Moore and Rodney Collin, and perhaps a second book on the Gospel of Thomas. Today we discuss his newest book, The Lost Teachings of the Cathars, Their Beliefs and Practices. We're discussing uh, your book, The Lost Teachings of the Cathars, Their Beliefs and Practices, and it seems by the summary to be a more a more rational sort of pragmatic um, assessment of the mythology surrounding the Cathars as well as their uh, their identifiable history. Is that correct? Yes, I guess so. Um, uh, well, you know, like I'm I'm interested in um, all the kind of esoteric traditions about the Cathars as well. Uh, but uh, uh, so I, I do, uh, you know, a couple of things in the book. I go back to what we can find, you know, given the available evidence of what the Cathars believed and what their mythology was and what they did and what it meant to them. Uh, and then I go and look at uh, what's been made of that uh, later on, since mainly since the 19th century with various esoteric groups and people like that. So I'm interested in both sides and, um, you know, I have an uneasy attraction to each side as well to you know i'm very keen on scholarship but uh, i'm also an esotericist and um even though a lot of the esoteric interpretations of the cathars don't have an awful lot to do with what we can know about them historically um in certain ways that i still find them inspiring and how do you reconcile the um the irrational with the rational because that's something i'm coming up against um with this podcast is I'm, I'm attempting to um, balance those two things. And it seems like a lot of people concentrate on sort of uh, what could be termed as sort of new age uh, hokum, stuff like that. Um, but then there, I do believe that there is real magic, you know, and real um, as that esoteric esoterica actually does contain truth. So how do you go about balancing those two things? Yes, that's a very good question and a difficult one as well. Um, and I don't, I don't think one necessarily has to be comfortable um, 
being in this in-between position with the, uh, you know, as, as, as most of us are, you know, nowadays, we, you know, we have so much access to sort of historical records about the past and historical interpretations of the past and all the scholarship. And esotericism is widely available to us in a way that it wasn't, <clears throat> say, a century ago um, because of the... Um, well, the kind of communications that are available to us with the internet and, you know, with the, you know, have decades of uh, new age and esoteric publishing and everything. Uh, and, and also in a society that isn't so, well, particularly in Europe, isn't uh, so uniquely Christian or, you know, so wedded to mainstream Christian churches and everything. So, so I think anybody who is interested in esotericism uh, and I don't mean just an intellectual interest as well. I also agree that, you know, magic is a real thing and, um, uh, you know, these are real questions about, you know, spiritual ascent or, uh, <coughs> you know, whatever. Um, so I think we're, we're all kind of in that situation. We can't just naively read esoteric works and assume that they're literally true. Uh, so we're, we're stuck in in this kind of quandary between the rational and the rational, like you, you're saying. But it, I think it is actually a good position to be in in many ways, and uh, it's part of the sort of zeitgeist. Um, so how do I deal with that? Um, I think I have a number of uh, kind of tactics. Um, well, one is simply you can ignore uh, you can ignore one at the expense of the other. I mean, you can ignore <laughs> the uh, you can suspend judgment or suspend disbelief for a while when you're pursuing esotericism, and I don't think there's anything dishonest about that. You know, you can temporarily uh, adopt a belief system. Um, I mean, chaos magic is famous for using belief as a tool, so you, you adopt uh, a belief system temporarily to achieve certain effects, you know, whether magical effects or psychological or spiritual effects on yourself. Um, and vice versa, you might find yourself in a situation where you're putting the reality of, you know, any kind of spiritual world or the esoteric worldview to one, other, to one side so that you can actually look at the, go and read the texts and the history and the scholarship and assess those on logical and rational grounds for a while. Because I think it is important to do that as well, just to look at arguments and say, okay, do these arguments make sense of the data that, that we have? Um, so <clears throat> then in, my, in the Cathars, I kind of... I try to hold my sympathy with esotericism and with what the Cathars might have believed themselves while describing what I find and assessing it ra uh, rationally and critically as well. So to give an example, um, there was a, an art historian actually uh, who proposed that um, Hieronymus Bosch represented a continuation of the Cathars. And, you know, Bosch was a good couple of centuries after the trail goes cold and the Cathars had been um, largely wiped out in the Albigensian Crusade and then, uh, you know, 
pinned further down by the uh, Inquisition. Um, so I, so you know, I don't think that's a ludicrous idea in itself that Hieronymus uh, Bosch inherited the, uh, uh, you know, the Cathar ideology and the history in a direct connection. Um, but I, when I looked at her arguments, I found them a, a bit wanting and um, somewhat uh, dependent on very loose uh, interpretation of symbolism in art, like the kind of, you, you know, uh, you know, you're an artist, so you well know that Hieronymus Bosch is full of strange symbols. And uh, while I would agree that he didn't just make them all out of whole cloth and they didn't just spill forth, from his imagination, they have a cultural context as well. Whether you can link those symbols to the kind of symbols associated to the Cathars is uh, questionable. But I don't think the idea itself is Sorry, ridiculous. What, what, sorry what, what, specifically, what specifically did she identify as having some sort of Cathar origin? Um, I, I actually have trouble remembering. <laughs> uh, but I, I do address this in the... Um, uh, in the chapter that looks at theories of Cathar survival. Um, so I, I think there's a certain kind of cross and um, I, I, I must say I found it all quite vague and uh, uh, unfortunately you've got me as I'm uh, in the process of going through the edits for my most recent book about the Mandaeans. So the uh, the Cathars aren't uh, you know at the forefront of my thinking at the moment. And uh, I'm going to... Yeah, what's your what's the current book you're working on? Uh, it's called John the Baptist and the Last Gnostics, and it's a it's a history of the Mandaeans uh, running backwards from the present day to um, see what we can know about the Mandaeans and whether they really could have come from uh, John the Baptist and um, whether they're really Gnostic. Um, so, so I'm going through the copy edits uh, on that at the moment. That, that'll also be published by Watkins uh, if everything goes well in August. Um, so my mind is full of ancient Mesopotamia and uh, first century baptismal sects and things like that. At the moment. Wow, that's that's fantastic. How how do you how do you research that? I mean, you mentioned that you go through the texts and the histories historical documents, et cetera. How do you specifically research the, the esoteric side of things? Um, well, how, how do you mean by the esoteric side of things in that kind of context? Well, I mean, uh, well, this is actually a huge question for me is I don't, I don't know how people actually find out about sort of secrets of the past, basically having to do with mystery schools and, and initiation rituals and stuff like that. How, uh, that just comes from the same historical documents as well, or how do you find out about that? Well, that, that's what I do. I mean, I, I go through the scholarship, um, you know, and as far as I can, I go back to the original texts. And, um, uh, you know, and unfortunately, with a, a lot of this stuff is fairly obscure, uh, at least in Western terms. And, so, you know, I can't go and learn Arabic and Mandaic, which is a, the, the Mandaean language, which is a form of Ara Aramaic, uh, just for one book. <laughs> so you get uh, reliant on uh, translations. Um, but so my, my method is to look through the scholarship and the academic work 
and um, to take what I can from there and put that into an esoteric context. So, uh, for example, with the Cathars again, I was looking for anything strange um, that's com coming up, and, and it's a very strange time, you know, the medieval period. Uh, it's, uh, you know, on the one hand, you have this dominant uh, Catholic church that really is excluding anything else. On the other hand, there are all sorts of weird things uh, going on in the sidelines. Um, so so my, my method is to look for the stranger things, the things that get mentioned in scholarship, but they're kind of in footnotes and, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, I mean, that was, you know, particularly with the Cathars book, um, you know, there are many books available on the Cathars and, there are, you know, many good books available on the Cathars. Most of them focus on the Albigensian Crusade, you know, and some of them are basically kind of military histories, even though they deny it. So, you, you know, the Cathars had these, had this esoteric worldview, which was actually esoteric in the sense of uh, inner meaning and that there was an esoteric group within the Cathars, the perfect, who um, had who were subject to, you know, considerable discipline and, you know, uh, had experiences that weren't available to the believers, you know, who were basically the, the lay people. Um, so I've kind of rambled off a bit there, but um, my, my answer is that I look through the scholarship and I try to assess, it, uh, you know, what's going on in the scholarship and what's interesting to me in the scholarship. Uh, which does mean digging through academic, tedious academic papers and all that kind of stuff and um, turgid translations. Um, but, there, you know, there's gold, you know, amidst the mud, all that stuff. Um, so, it, now, I actually, you know, I'm actually looser in my sort of rational... Uh, uh, insistence than uh, academics are, um, but I, I do like things to make sense, you know, like arguments to make sense. And if the data doesn't seem to support what somebody is saying about it, you know, I'm not going to accept it just because it's esoteric. Uh, now, and other people, like with, for example, with the Cathars, and another source of esoteric knowledge, uh, you know, about the past is through experience, through visions, through, um, you know, uh, reincarnation memories, that kind of stuff. Now, I, you know, I'm certain that those are real experiences. And, um, I mean, they're often difficult experiences for people. Um, and they're, they're important. I'm not always, I'm not very certain that they actually give historical information. I think they belong to... The world of experience rather than the world of kind of critical history you know so for example you have uh, in the second half of the 20th century in england you have arthur girdham who's um become very famous in uh connection with reincarnation because he he was a, he was actually a psychiatrist you know a very high-ranking psychiatrist uh, and um, he became convinced that he was a reincarnated cathar after he met a patient of his who had long discussion with and she seemed to be having memories of her previous life as Cathar and then he met another lady and um, there was a whole group of people ostensibly who were 
having uh, these same memories and they were a group reincarnation. Now, when I went to examine that more closely, I found that um, uh, a lot of it wasn't really literally true. I mean, he, he seemed to have had the wool pulled over his eyes a little bit, and I think quite willingly on his behalf. Um, for example, you know, this big group of people who were undergoing the group reincarnation, he only actually met uh, two or three of them. and uh, Yeah, and he, he didn't even identify their names, did he? No, he, he was given names by, um, I'm trying, not, not the first lady, Mrs. Smith, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the second lady, to uh, Miss, um, I don't know the names, escape me. But he, he actually never got to meet them. I mean, he, he occasionally there were, he, he seemed to have been set up a bit. I mean, you know, he'd try and meet somebody and then they wouldn't turn up. And, and then this person, you know, somebody moved to Canada out of the blue and then he was getting phone calls from Canada and, um, you know, and he and he was saying, uh, you know, I nearly fell off my seat because her voice was exactly like the name of Miss, you know, X. Right, right, right. <laughs> In contact with that. So I think when you look more closely at a lot of the kind of... Um, you know, Akashic records and all that kind of stuff. A lot of it doesn't hold up historically. And very rarely does it, you know, does somebody say something from this kind of esoteric view about the past that later gets confirmed by the discovery of something. So my take on that is that it's a valid experience, but um, it's... it's just a, it's a different kind of experience to, you know, intellectual, critical academic examination of of history well i mean they both seem rather flawed don't they in their own ways and is there any example of any kind of thing um happening where people uh came up with, with, where people came up with some sort of information about their past life or whatever and that actually did uh come to fruition in other words was verified well there was a tiny example with arthur Gertham, actually um because um, I think this was Mrs. Smith, actually, the first lady. Oh, and, and the, the, the second uh, associate was Miss Mills. That, that was her name. Um, so Mrs. Smith had a vision, or however she saw these things, in which um, the Cathars were wearing green, dark green and dark blue cloaks, um, if I'm getting this right. Uh, and I'm may, maybe not remembering the details. Anyway, that, that she, she got the... What, uh, the colour of the cloaks wrong, and um, you know from all the information that was published in English, uh, you know they wore, wore a certain colour cloak, the Cathaperfects. Um, but then, um, when he investigated further, he found that something just been published in French, in um, saying that after the Inquisition, when the Cathars were having to hide away, and you know they really in threat in danger of losing their lives and being imprisoned, they started wearing different colour cloaks as, you know, as a way of accommodating themselves to this new situation. So it's a tiny little detail, but um, that does seem to be one instance where um, uh, she, she had information that seemed to be incorrect and then was later confirmed by um, uh, new scholarship. Uh, but that's just about the only instance, I think. And... Um, she said that the robes were blue, right? And yes, that, that's previously right. that's they'd, they'd been thought to have been black. Is that is that what it was? I I think that's what it was. Yes, like I said, my head is full of other 
details at the moment. So um, I'm going to have to paint in broad strokes when I <laughs> talk to you. I, I neglected to ask you about your background. So uh, how is it that you got interested in this to begin with? This, not just the cathars, I mean, esoterica in general. Well, um, I've been attracted to esotericism since I was a teenager. Um, and I became um, the first thing that, well, you know, I was interested in magical traditions and that kind of stuff. And uh, just in anything that uh, seemed to refer to some experiences I'd had as a child. Um, uh, and, and also, I think, you know, a lot of people, it's, it's kind of fantasy literature and that kind of stuff that sows the seed, uh, you know, in, in many ways. Um, but um, so I was interested in esotericism and I encountered uh, Gurdjieff and Uspensky, the uh, their writings, and that really did the trick for me at the time. It answered so much and I found it very convincing and it was full of things that you could do to study yourself and to understand yourself in a new way and to develop yourself and experience new levels of consciousness. And so I actually, um, so when I was about 21, I went off and joined a group, uh, moved to London because I, I come from Wales and um uh, now, this the group that I joined, which was actually called the Fellowship of Friends, um, turned out to have quite a kind of culty aspect to it, um, which in my enthusiasm, and I must say, you know, I really kind of did develop in leaps and bounds um, in those early years, practicing the third ears and everything. Um, but it was basically a kind of cult, and... Um, that uh, I moved to California to the headquarters there and um, lived there for about 10 years. And then it kind of, it just got worse and there was more pressure on, you know, for pulling in all the money and everything like that. So um, part of my journey through, with that was I, I became, there's an esoteric interpretation of the Gospels um, that Uspensky worked on a little bit and a, a man called Morris Nichol wrote who was a pupil of Uspensky and and also of C.G. Jung early on and he wrote uh, two books called The New Man and the Mark which interpreted the Gospels according to the kind of Gurdjieff Uspensky system to some extent so I became very interested in that and then in the question of Jesus you know who was the historical Jesus and you know just dipping my toes into the waters of the kind of scholarship surrounding this i actually found myself diving in <laughs> headlong after after a while and i became very interested in the esoteric side of christianity um so esoteric interpretations of the gospels and then what the earliest christianity could have been about and then gnosticism because you know when you think of esoteric christianity gnosticism comes to mind and um so tr just trying to unravel what was going on there trying to understand the texts and then Again, when getting into the scholarship, I wanted to understand why scholars came to certain conclusions. So you have to understand the arguments and you have to know the counter arguments, all that kind of stuff. So I really, you know, got very deeply into it. And so my first, so in terms of my writing career, most of my books have been about Gnosticism or early Christianity in one way or the other. Um, and then the... Um, you know, I did a dictionary of Gnosticism and an introduction to Gnosticism, which has just been 
republished as Secret History of the Gnostics. And so the Cathars uh, became very interesting to me as well. And um, uh, and then the Mandaeans as well. You know, I, I'm actually nearly um, at the end of my uh, Gnostic period, I think, because uh, I, I never... Really? Are you what? Yeah. What have you what have you learned from the Gnostic, your Gnostic period, as you refer to it? Um, well, lots of things. Um, I, it hasn't been all that practical uh, for me, I have to say. Uh, I mean, there are, you know, uh, Gnostic groups now. There was the Gnostic revival in the uh, late 19th century that began in France. Um and with the Gnostics, you know, we don't have this uh, uninterrupted, uh, you know, stream of transmission from uh, the ancient world. Um, we do arguably with the Mandaeans, but uh, they're kind of at one remove from everything else that's going on. Uh, so it hasn't been very practical. And um, the sort of Gnostic revival has been quite uh liberal Catholic based, you know, um, uh, in terms of these sort of offshoots of the Catholic church that were more esoterically oriented. Um, so they, they use the sacraments as a tool, um, for gnosis. Um, so for me, the, the exploration of Gnosticism has been about all about the worldview. And I must say it's kind of, broadened my whole um, sphere of esoteric interest as well because I've, bec I've become very interested in magic as well and at the beginning I kind of assumed that um, you know magic was somewhat separate from any esoteric Christian tradition or from you know esoteric traditions th themselves uh, and now I don't think that's the case at all and the, the Gnostics were involved in the uh, world of ancient magic of the <coughs> excuse me uh, you know, it's the kind of stuff that was going on in the centuries around the time of the birth of Jesus. Um, so I don't think these things are very separate. And it's usually a kind of artificial, priestly kind of thing that um, that separates magic from uh, religion or, you know, esoteric development or spiritual development. So, um, so I think I found in the variety of worldviews that are available in Gnosticism, um, I never found anything that quite satisfied me completely. And I, I must say, even though I don't take it very literally anymore, I'd say that the sort of Gurdjieff's uh, cosmology and view of the world, um, I still find the most satisfying, although I don't follow, follow it uniquely. Uh, you know, I'm interested in lots of other views as well. Yeah, and um, you mentioned the Society of Friends. Is that the Quakers? No, that was the Fellowship of Friends. It, it was kind of an offshoot of the Gurdjieff Uspensky work. Um, okay, all right. Uh, that didn't really have much of a kind of lineage from Gurdjieff, you know, because Gurdjieff and Uspensky both died in the late 1940s. Um, so I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Uh, there were lo lots of interesting things happened to me there, and there, there was also this focus on kind of high culture. Uh, as well, which was good to be a part of. Um, but uh, it does have all the things that a cult has. Uh, you know, you become scared of leaving and 
there's lots of money involved and the teacher was having sex with you know dozens and dozens and dozens of young men many of which who were married and everything so um it it was very much a mixed experience for me um i certainly don't reject everything that i did during during the 20 years nearly that i was a part of it uh, but uh, uh and that was that in the sierra it it says in your bio that that was in the sierra nevada foothills of california that's right yes yes where where exactly was that i'm from berkeley so that's why i'm interested <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, it was up between uh, Marysville, Yuba City, and uh, Nevada City. So kind of halfway between the two. And um, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, there was a, a vineyard. Working on the vineyard was a big part of it. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, that's very much diminished now. But um, they produced, you know, excellent wines. And interesting. What What was the name of the leader of that? Uh, Robert Burton. Oh, okay. Is he still around or? He's still alive, yes, yeah. um, uh, and it's, it's still going. I mean, about a third of the membership left uh, around the time that I did. Uh, um, a lot of, you, you know, we kind of accommodated ourselves to knowing that uh, he was having sex with all these young guys and everything like that. Um, but it was just, it was all very much worse than we thought. And, uh, well, and some stuff like leaked out onto a blog on the internet and then... Um, a few couple of people got kicked out for attending a non-duality teacher with Adyashanti, Adyashanti uh, and it, it was just getting and, and the teaching was actually going away from the Gurdjieff Uspensky stuff and into this kind of very poor quality and wacky interpretation of uh, ancient scripture and stuff. Uh, so it's still going there. But, uh, you know. Did he claim that the sex was some sort of um, some sort of yoga or something? He he was always very vague about. I mean, I, I, and I have to say, you know, I, I was never in that situation myself, but I have spoken to people. Uh, he, he was always very vague about the value of it. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, I mean, he was, he was a master of um, giving people kind of contradictory impulses. And, and there was always enough, you know, pe people don't join cults or stay in cults for no reason whatsoever. You do get certain benefits from them, either in community or spiritual benefits. But at the same time, it's kind of, it's poisoned by all the other stuff that's going on, you know. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm definitely aware of what you're talking about. Having grown up in a California cult myself. Oh, uh, which one did you grow up in? Uh, <laughs> Self-realization fellowship, which is not the worst cult in the world. It has to be said, but it is a cult uh, of of a personality of of um of Yogananda. Right. You know? And wasn't there an offshoot of that in Nevada City with um? Yeah, I think Kriyananda yeah. must have been up there, right? Yes, I think so. And he had similar. That was. Um, I'm trying to think what his name was. Korean um, uh, Nada. Oh, his real name, Donald yeah. something. Yeah. Yes, that's right, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, well, yes, that, that was also. I think that's still going. That's very long lived, and also had similar problems. That in his case, he was seducing women. I think wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, Walters. I think. I think yes, I think that's right. Yeah. And he he died yeah. a few years ago in in Assisi in Italy. I think he basically exiled himself after that uh, scandal. But um, so that actually does link back into the Cathars. So 
I read somewhere that um, there is actually a link between the Gnostics, the original Gnostics, and the Cathars in that um, the name, the word Cathar was mentioned in the Council of Nicaea. Is that true? Um, that's true. Um, uh, Catharoi mean it's a pl- Greek plural means pure ones. Um, so there was a, a sect at, at that time called Cathars. Now, there are a number of problems with that. Um, so this is back in, we're getting back to kind of fourth century or so. Uh, um, one, one of the problems is the, the Cathars didn't really call themselves Cathars. <laughs> <laughs> this was a term used by, um, you know, the sort of Catholic commentators of the time. And even even the Catholic commentators didn't use that term. They just called them heretics most of the time. Uh, and the, the Cathars called themselves the good Christians or the good men and the good women. Um, so so there's an, it's one of those suggestive links. You know, could it be the case that... Um, you know, there's a direct uh, descent from those ancient Cathars. Uh, uh, it does seem a kind of a little bit dubious, though. Um, th- th- there are arguments that you can trace the Cathars all the way back to the ancient Gnostics via some intermediate groups. Um, so the Cathars definitely had a connection with the Bogomils, who were kind of a similar group, who were east of the Cathars, so they were in the Balkans, and uh, particularly around Bulgaria. And um, the Cathars actually directly traced their descent in terms of the consolamentum, the um, the central rite of uh, you know, Cathar practice, uh, which was a laying on of hands. Um, so it required a kind of a direct link from person to person. And um, the, so that link does go back to Bulgaria. And then... In Bulgaria, the, so the Bogomils, we can get them back to about the <clears throat> 10th, 11th century, and they're connected with Constantinople and the, uh, the Byzantine Empire. They, they pop up in certain contexts as heretics there. Um, there were another group, the Paulicians, who were in, in somewhat the same area, who uh, were thought to have links to the Manichaeans, who go all the way back to the third century, and the, had definitely had connections with the, the ancient Gnostics, you know, the Sethians, Valentinians, all those people uh, in Egypt and Syria and those areas. So the, the Manichaean religion has some quite some similarities to uh, Catharism. Um, so Mani was in the third century, and he actually grew up within a, a sort of heterodox baptismal sect called the Elkasites, um, and this is in the kind of region of Mesopotamia around modern Iraq. Syria was mainly where he was active, and then further over into Persia, modern Iran. So, so he actually created, he had uh, these visionary experiences when he's, particularly when he's 12 and 24 years old, of his uh, angelic twin, and uh, his myth involved a world of light and world of darkness, and the world of darkness kind of encroached on the world of light, and there's a big battle. And the uh, the earth is a mixture of light and darkness, and so the whole point is to liberate the light from the darkness, and the, uh, the earth is like a kind of uh, factory purifying the light from the darkness, 
But we can also do that as human beings within ourselves, uh, liberating the light within ourselves from the darkness, and then at death, if that's successful, and you know this was seen in the Manichaean context, uh, you go back to the world of light, um, which is very Gnostic in its outlook. Uh, and they, like the Cathars, they had uh, quite a strict division into the elect, who are the inner circle and the esoteric side, and the auditors or listeners or hearers who were the lay people who didn't have many strictures placed on them whatsoever. Um, and you also find that kind of division in other minority religions in the uh, Middle East to this day. You know, uh, groups like the, the Druze and the Alawites and the Yazidis uh, and the Mandaeans, um, they have this inner circle that has all the esoteric knowledge and then the ordinary people usually have very few restrictions placed on them apart from uh, you know, a few rituals that they have to perform. So what what do you make of the Merovingian mythos? Is that a new construct, or is that something that you think has some sort of historical validity? Um, well, I I think it is a construct um, because uh, because it has been deconstructed. <laughs> uh, you know the whole uh, Priory of Sion thing. Um, now I do find that fascinating, and when I first read. Uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Uh, I thought it was brilliant and fascinating, but also, you know, I thought, okay, if this is true, I mean, it means that some seedy right-wing French guy is the uh, heir to Christ. The father, the the priest at Rennes Le Chateau, is that who you're referring to? Or? Uh, no, um, Beranger, I think. Uh, uh, no, um, what's the name of the... The, the guy... Uh, who was the head of the Prior of Sion in the 20th oh, century. Oh, right, 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 yeah. Uh, I don't think what his name was. Um, but uh, I, I still have a bit of a cold at the moment, so unfortunately I'm not as on the ball as I'm... <laughs> no, it's not fine, though. So, um, so he was the one who was kind of leaking a lot of the, this information. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, you know the, a lot of the original documents have been published now, you know, the dossier secret uh, uh, and all those things and letters and stuff you can uh, there's a you know an anthology of those easily available and um, Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince uh, did a good job of deconstructing what was going on in the book the uh, sound revelation uh, so I actually I love this stuff I think I mentioned in the Cathars book uh, even if none of it is true, I think it's added to, <laughs> to our kind of uh, the richness of our experience in the world. Um, so I think the, that overall picture, you know, the bloodline of Christ and then uh, the heirs being protected down the centuries by the Prior of Sion and um, uh, that making its way up to the present day, I, I think that is a construct. Um, but doesn't that have a historical precedent in the um, Cathar worship of Mary Magdalene? And didn't the Cathars themselves believe that uh, Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene had offspring, or no? Um, no, I don't think uh, they believed that they had offspring. Um, but, but perhaps what you're referring to there is um, 
you, you know, the the Cathars have been connected with with all this stuff going on, and uh, they're connected with Mary Magdalene as well. Um, and there was a kind of cult of Mary Magdalene in the south of France, uh, and traditions, excuse me, that uh, included in the uh, a, an anthology of kind of saints' lives uh, called the Golden Legend, which was extraordinarily popular in medieval times. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there's a story of Mary Magdalene there and how um, she gets shipwrecked in the south of France and then she goes and founds a church and everything. Uh, it doesn't say that she was the bride of Jesus or anything, that story. Um, but actually, in... Uh, a kind of fragment that was preserved in, in, by two different uh, sort of Catholic polemicists. Uh, that, that they say her, the Cathars had a secret teaching that um, Jesus and Mary were married, um, and it is, but it, it is all very spiritualized. Uh, they didn't have children, and it's to do with the big Cathar myth, and it's all a bit inconsistent. But they do fair, fair enough. That is there, you know. There was a tradition that Jesus and Mary were married. Yeah, at least I, among some I just uh, I I was just in uh, in Cathar country a couple of weeks ago, and I did see a lot of reference to Mary Magdalene uh, in churches or wherever else, you know. So it seems like there was some sort of uh, like it seems like there must be some kind of connection between uh, the myth, the mythology the surrounding Renle Chateau, and then and then the and then the history of the Cathars. Uh, regardless of whether what happened at Renle Chateau has any truth to it or not. Yeah, yes. And, th- and that's an interesting one, actually, that we have it, this preserved because, um, you know, the, the Cathar Perfect didn't marry. The, the Cathar Perfect were celibate uh, before you actually got initiated into the, you know, the esoteric inner side of Catharism. You could do whatever you like. You could, you know, you could cohabit with, you know, couples could just cohabit with each other without getting married, and it wasn't considered important. But when you became a perfect, you had to be celibate. So um, there wasn't any literal, you know, the, the the marriage of Jesus and Mary didn't provide a model for a literal marriage because Cathars didn't believe in marriage anyway. Uh, um so I, th- I think, and, and also when you, you know, when you go further back into, um, say, the Gospel of Philip in the second century, uh, second century Gnostic Valentinian text, and that's where you have the bit that uh, Mary was the companion or consort of Jesus, you know, and where she uh, kisses him on the mouth, you know. Um, now that's what a lot, you know, a lot of the um, stuff about. Uh, Jesus and Mary being married uh, relies on that. And I've actually written a book about the Gospel of Philip, uh, oh, the Gospel right. of Philip annotated and explained, which was um, my first book for a mainstream publisher, I think. That was, um, uh, now, so so that that's actually in the Gospel of Philip. Um, but it, I find most of the Gospel of Philip is, is full of these kind of spiritual allegories and metaphors. So I don't find any reason to take that very literally either in the Gospel of Philip. But but I do give people, you know, a way out of that. Uh, the Gospel of Philip is thought to be a compilation of these Valentinian, basically a compilation of thoughts from different uh, sources that uh, have been combined together and survived uh, 
Um, so um, if it's a compilation, it could be that that fragment is from an earlier gospel that was taken literally. Who knows? Um, yeah. And what about yeah. the, um, what about, okay, so, but the myth goes that the Merovingian bloodline uh, is the sort of, is is the sort of forebear of the um, royalty of Europe, right? And then there's also this, I've heard that Prince Charles said that he was descended from Jesus and that that supposedly ties in with this Merovingian myth. Have you heard about that at all? And what do you think about it if you have? Um, well, I, I think that's probably very unlikely that Prince Charles said that. I mean, um, he is interested in, uh, well, well, I know he's involved in traditionalism uh, to some extent, uh, which is an esoteric uh, movement. Um, so I think it's very unlikely he said that. Um, the, the the link between the Merovingians and the uh, the bloodline of Jesus is the weakest bit of the Holy Blood, Holy Grail thing. Uh, um, basically, I think their only justification was there was a fish involved somewhere, <laughs> um, if, I, if I remember correctly. So, and and also the kind of, you know, um, that the Holy Blood, Holy Grail was the first English language book about the Priory of Sion, um, but there were early, there's some earlier stuff in French about it, about it, and um, the whole bloodline of Jesus wasn't part of the earlier version, as far as I understand. Um, uh, so. As as for the Merovingians feeding into royal bloodlines, um, yeah, I would think so. Uh, you know that it was very important to you know if you're a, a royal to marry another royal, and um, you know you see at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, you know all the uh, royal families in Europe were very closely related. I mean, there's that famous photograph of um, the whichever king, Edward or whoever it was, uh, the, the king, British king, um, and his cousin, who was the Tsar at the time, and they, they you know, they look more like twins than cousins. Right, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look like clones, um, actually. Yes, really. Yeah. Uh, so, there's, I think there's a, I, th I think it's a great story, and it's fascinating to try and untangle it all. Um, I don't think it all holds together. And if if it did, you know, I mean, I think most people still have a big, you know, so what? You know, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not particularly pro-monarchist myself, even though, you know, even though I come from one of the, uh, you know, most... Uh, monarchical countries in the world, you know, the, in Britain, <laughs> the constitutional monarchy. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, but you, um, live in, you live in Dublin currently, right? I do, yes, right. yes. I'm, I'm from Wales, uh, live in Dublin now, married to an Irish woman, and uh, I've lived, in, I've lived in, in and around London for 10 years as well, and uh, in California for 10 years. So your book is Lost Teachings of the Cathars, their beliefs and practices. And so what are the beliefs and practices that you're citing in your book? Okay. Um, it's quite interesting, actually. They, they're not separate from each other. They, um, belief and practice um, are very linked 
to each other, the Cathars. <clears throat> so they have this grand myth, which is very Gnostic, um, even though it uh, it's very medieval as well in, in certain ways. Um, um, there was a rebellion in heaven, uh, so the, the devil or Satan uh, rebelled, led angels out of heaven, um, but this heaven was completely spiritual. Uh, the you know, matter either didn't exist or wasn't uh, discovered at that time. So, the, uh, so Satan and a third of the angels um, leave heaven in rebellion, and they, f- they either find or create the material world, uh, and they get kind of trapped in the material world, and um, Satan tries to fashion human beings and he only gets so far and he has to have help from uh, you know the father to to work it all out and so we end up with the situation that we're in whereas um every human being and animal uh, according to the cathars have a spark of the spirit trapped within them which is actually the the spirit of an angel um and so and these spirits or souls that you know they're kind of a bit vague about uh, distinguishing between the two terms uh, move from life to life so when so when somebody dies or an animal dies you go on to another life and this spirit which is also you know a, a trapped angel uh, goes on to another life until you meet the good men and women the cathars um, and so if you meet the cathars you can be initiated initiated as a cathar perfect and you go through the consolamentum the consoling which involves the spirit coming down into you uh, and so you're basically connecting with this little spark of spirit or trapped angel uh, so then if you once you've received the consolamentum which is actually connected with the gospel of john when jesus says that he will send the paraclete uh, which is a form of the holy spirit and which is rendered uh, in Latin as a word connected with consolation. Um, um, so once that happens, you're under strict uh, disciplines. You can't eat uh, animals because they have uh, sparks of spirit or you know, trapped angels within them as well. Uh, you can't have sex, um, partly because if you have sex, you can have babies and you're going to continue trapping spirits within the world um, and you know you uh, once you're perfect you want to kind of spread the message about the true state of uh, humanity on in the world and you want you can um, initiate other people to become perfect through the consolamentum again um, and Andrew are the are the spirits that they pull down are they uh, androgynous? Are they hermaphroditic spirits? Because that's—I think—that's what Tracy Twyman said last week. Um, yes, I think they are. Um, certainly, they can move between male and female bodies in different lifetimes. Um, so, I think it's f- well. Well, you know, actually, Cathar beliefs beliefs aren't very consistent um, because. Um, they weren't very hierarchical and what I was going to mention actually about the the perfect, if you're a perfect you can initiate another perfect um, but then if you don't keep your vows anymore, 
that whole line of initiation is invalid and everybody below you and you you know and the perfect himself or herself has to get initiated again so there's a lot of personal responsibility there you know you can invalidate the whole line if you don't keep to your vows so um women were perfect as well and there was no particular difference between men and women um uh, in the, in those terms uh, so you could be on your final lifetime as a female perfect and uh, so I, I would agree yes in that sense uh, these the spirits or the angels were androgynous um, but b because it's not very hierarchical and it didn't reach the stage where it became a heavily organized religion there are lots of kind of local differences in the beliefs and the way that the myth was retold and the kind of repercussions of the myth and because you would have a perfect and a group of believers around uh, him or her, uh, you could get a lot of local variation in the account of the myth and everything. So in some versions, uh, the angels are married in heaven, which would mean that they, to some extent, male and female. Um, but uh, in, in general, I, I would agree these angels are basically androgynous. And that's also a theme in other forms of Gnosticism, um, that uh, what you're aspiring to is in, in effect a form of androgyny where you know the male and female uh, are united. And doesn't that tie back with Zoroastrianism? Because what I'm getting from what you're saying is that it seems like a lot of these Middle Eastern uh, cults from the time, I guess, of Jesus or before that um, were sort of based in Zoroastrianism or some sort of dualism that was similar to that which is espoused by Zoroastrianism. And the fact that the Cathars seem to be dualist, very markedly dualist as well seems to be, uh, it seems to, it does seem to be a link to, to these Gnostic and then the, and then the, the, um, the, the predecessors of the Gnostics. What do you think about that as a possibility? Um, there, there definitely is a link. Um, for example, uh, when I spoke about Mani and the Manichaeism, yeah. um, uh, there's a definite link there. Um, he incorporated Zoroastrian elements into his religion. Um, uh, he also he got crucified by Zoroastrian priests uh, by the Magi. Um, so uh, because he, he was becoming quite influential within uh, you know the Sasanian uh, Empire in Iraq at that time. Um, so. And then, so you can trace this, that, you know, there, there was a very interesting book called The Other God by a scholar called Stoyanov, um, who he traces the thread of dualism through, through the ages. And, you know, the link between the Cathars and the ancient Gnostics is this thread of dualism rather than, you know, uh, any other aspect of Gnosticism. Right. Um, now, wh wh whether the Zoroastrians, see, the, now, the Zoroastrians were quite dualist, as were the Manichaeans. Um, and there are different forms of dualism. So one kind of dualism, which is kind of might be called absolute dualism, is that you have light and darkness from the beginning and they're enemies and they've existed, you know, forever and they will exist forever. Uh, and there's a war between light and darkness. Um, so that's the Zoroastrian kind. And that's somewhat what you see in Mandaism, with the Mandaeans who survived modern times, and it's definitely what you see in Manichaeism. 
Um, with the Cathars, you actually get uh, another kind of dualism, which was more typical of the ancient Gnostics, uh, and that you could call it moderated uh, dualism is one name for it, or monarch monarchical dualism is another. And in that form, at the beginning, you just had spirit, or you just had light, there was no darkness. And then something happens, you know, there's a fall. Like So in the version of the Cathar myth that I've been telling you, uh, you just have spirit at the beginning, or if you have if you have matter, it doesn't have anything. It's just there. It's kind of dead and doesn't have anything to do with anything. So it, it requires a fall and uh, to get to the kind of dualistic world that we live in, uh, and you get this in ancient Gnosticism as well. You have uh, emanations, so you have a single being, uh, the you know, the highest god at the beginning, and then this being comes to no comes to generate another being uh, it's called a process of emanation it's not creation it's just it's a natural flowing out from God like you find in the Kabbalah as well you know the tree of life um, so then you get these emanations and then you're getting kind of further and further away from the original source and then something happens so like in ancient Gnosticism Sophia is an eon one of these emanations and she wants to find out you know what's beyond the Pleroma, the world of the fullness, you know, of the of the Father, and then everything goes wrong, and you get the creation of the material world, and you get the demiurge, the creator, who fashions the material world as well. And I, I think I forgot to mention that, but in uh, Catharism, the demiurge is the devil. It's the devil who fashioned the world that we live in, right. the material world, uh, which is an important kind of twist. It's very different to the view of the medieval Catholic Church at the time. Um, yeah, because isn't that what Catholics would have used to to claim that the Cathars were sat Satanists, obviously? Yes, and vice versa too. I mean, the uh, the, the the Cathars called the Catholic Church the Church of Satan. <laughs> so, so you know, uh, what goes around comes around. <laughs> and the the in Judaism, there's also the concept of the sons of light versus the sons of darkness, right? So that's that's the same dualism uh, coming into play in Judaism as well, it would seem. That's right, yes. You see that in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so, so you know, so, okay, um, Jews were in Babylon in the exile, and, and you know, we have a view, you know, the, the view has been popularly maintained that Judaism is a very pure religion, and, of course, you know, since the destruction of the temple and the, being expelled from Judea and all that kind of stuff, and then the persecution of Jews down through the centuries, um, the, you know, the Jews' own view, view of themselves is of a kind of an ethnically pure people and uh, a religiously pure people as well. You know, but, but in fact, you know, there's always mixing and intermingling going on and uh, mutual influence. And that was definitely the case in the ancient world. You know, So the Jews were in exiles in Babylon. And they were among Aramaic speakers, uh, you know, so it's a very closely related language to Hebrew. Uh, and all these you know, figures from Babylonian uh, Mesopotamian religion get into the Bible. And weren't necessarily all that, you know, closely distinguished. And then, you know, uh, 
So it's not impossible that uh, Zoroastrianism could have influenced uh, Judaism uh, in terms of you know the light and darkness, dualism, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's also possible that people come up with things separately, or that this is a kind of perception that people have of the world. You know, going back to the esoteric side of it, uh, I think that can happen spontaneously. You know, you can. I don't think it's the only valid way to view the world, but uh, you can perceive the world as, you know, spirit trapped in uh, matter, you know, which is also, Plato was also, you know, a strong influence on the Gnostics and on Christianity in general and on Judaism of the early centuries there. Uh, So people can have higher or altered states of consciousness and have a perception of the world. Uh, I don't think those perceptions are always absolutely consistent. You know, we have, diff- you know, you can view the world as a whole as well. You can have a kind of unitary experience where you see everything as part of one original source. Or I think you have a, quite a valid experience as, as well of dualism where you see spirit trapped in matter, and I, I think the different sides are the same thing, and they have different advantages. And as modern people living in complex societies where we have we're aware of all these different viewpoints, I think we can adopt them to fit a little bit. You know, if we're going through very difficult circumstances, that's a time where a more radically dualist and, and gnostic worldview. Is perhaps a, perhaps a you know appropriate way to view the world and what's happening to you. Um, Why? Because it's more uh, in- inclusive. No, because it tells you that, uh, that the world is difficult. The world is a fallen place. You know, uh, you know. There's no denying that. Well, this is like something I like about Gurdjieff as well. You know, um, the world is based on one thing eating another. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. oh. You know. Um, so that, you know, the world is based on violence. Uh, you know, nature is incredibly violent. And, you know, the, the animals that have just been true to themselves can do extraordinarily nasty things to, <laughs> to other animals. Um, on the other hand, it's beautiful, too. And right. also, you know, uh, it's good not to be alienated from nature, I think. You know, so... Uh, so yeah, I mean, we, humanity seems to be going in that direction, doesn't it? It, it does, yes, yeah. And I think, like, uh, C.G. Jung became very interested in the Gnostics, um, and even one of the Nag Hammadi codices uh, after this discovery in 1945 was actually bought by the Jung Foundation as a birthday present for it, <laughs> extraordinarily. But, um, so I, I think he saw the Gnostics as, uh, you know, moving towards integration, that, you know, they recognize that their psyches were out of balance and dissociated and um, parts were separated from the others in terms of this kind of dualism. So that his view was, was that they, uh, you know, they kind of acknowledged the state of humanity and then they were moving towards integration by acknowledging this uh, original source uh, that we were going to be restored to. You know, I'm not a Jungian, but I do find... Uh, aspects of his work interesting well can you tell tell us a little bit more about this concept of that life according to Gurdjieff is uh one thing eating another but first I wanted to just mention that while you're talking I was thinking that the the whole 
Ashkenazi Sephardic duality actually seems Kabbalistic. And I'd never actually thought about that before. But basically, light and dark with Ashkenazi is obviously being lighter skinned or more northern people. And then Sephardim coming from uh, North Africa or whatever and via Spain. But uh, what, what about the, um, this concept of Gurdjieff, every that life is about one thing eating another? Is that like a core tenet of his philosophy? Um, well, he, you know, like I was, I was mentioning with the, the Cathars, that the myth ties in with the, uh, the ritual, and you're actually experiencing the living myth when you go through this ritual. So Gurdjieff, um, uh, he had a whole cosmo- cosmological side that he taught, uh, um, which has kind of some Neoplatonic aspects to it, uh, but it's very original in itself. And so Gurdjieff had this idea that everything is matter, a form of matter, and there is gradation. So um, he wasn't a dualist at all in that way, and the body is is very important in Gurdjieff's teaching uh, to be able to sense the body and integrate it into your your experience. Uh, But uh, so Gurdjieff classified everything as a form of matter so he has these gradations that are kind of alchemical in so in a certain way you know from stone wood and uh water in a general sense, liquids gases are different you know ascending forms of matter but then you get on to uh the substances that make up our internal world he also said we're material so even though it's a kind of more refined form of matter with a higher vibration, as the way he he put it, um, like the kind of thoughts that just flow all the time through our heads, he class he classified that as a particular form of matter, and then a kind of the more excited or emotional experiences were a higher form of matter again than that, and then you go up through to the kind of more either ecstatic or elevated experiences that you can uh, classify as a form of matter again. And so it all works very systematically um, in terms of, and also with the levels of the universe in terms of worlds and everything. Um, So so basically what he said, life on Earth is, uh, organic life on Earth uh, has a role for producing energies for the solar system. Um, and life on Earth is uh, dependent on one thing eating, eating each other. And in, in this you know, massive work and very difficult work that he, he produced called Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, um, he describes this as the trogo, uh, trogo egocrat, uh, I eat and am myself eaten. So everything gets eaten by a higher level of existence. And uh, in a certain way, which again weren't connected to the Cathars. You can be eaten by an angel. You know, the food from an angel is a lower level of existence. Uh, um, so I kind of no, no, I don't take this very literally. <laughs> and I, I think even a lot of Gurdjieff groups now uh, are kind of reluctant to bring in the cosmological side of it. Um, but um, I like to say that it acknowledges what's going on. You know, it's, it sounds like it has truth to it, actually, Andrew, because. It seems like um, sort of, I have this theory, I said this last week too, that uh, and 
an atom is a solar system, right? So infinity in both directions. And then you have the way that you were describing it, it sounded almost like there were uh, greater spheres and lesser spheres, right? Or lesser spheres within greater spheres. And then that has to do obviously with, with uh, heterotrophy, which is eating other beings. And then it also has to do with sex too, doesn't it? So it has to do with eating and sex. And then it has to do with sort of the, the physics and the makeup of the universe as well. So it kind of actually has a ring of truth to it. You know, I don't know exactly what the nuances of what your quote, what he said are or were, but that's what I was interpreting it as, you know, and it sounds truthful or valid. Yes. And he had, um, like sex energy was a, you know, he used the term hydrogens for the, these different levels of matter and energy and everything. But yeah, he had sex energy as kind of the highest production of the human machine, you know, that treat the machine, human organism as a kind of factory that uh, takes in air and, uh, sorry, food and air and impressions and, you know, produces these different substances. So he had sex energy as kind of the, the highest uh, energy that gets produced within the machine that can either be that usually gets directed outwards, and so it's a creative energy, so it ends up in the creation of more human beings as, you know, as children, and, uh, you know, sperm and egg and uh, children. Uh, or if it's directed for another purpose, it creates a soul within, you know, a kind of higher soul within. Um, so uh, there, you know, there is a lot to explore there. You know, you don't have to accept the whole thing, uh, and you can argue with it too and everything, but... Um, uh, in Search of the Miraculous by P.D. Uspensky is probably the best way to start. That, that with uh, Uspensky was um, one of Gurdjieff's chief pupils, you know, and a good writer and an esotericist in his own right as well. Um, so he describes how he meets Gurdjieff and how he was searching, and uh, it's it's really a classic. And uh, so uh, the last question I have is: um, you mentioned Otto Ron who is notorious, you call him the real-life Indiana Jones, and he's been referred to as that by other people as well. Um, and he is, you, you say in the summary for your book that uh, Otto Ron believed that the Cathars were protectors of the Holy Grail and received support from uh, Himmler. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, he actually, he comes up on TV documentaries relatively often, probably more than the Cathars or Gnostics do. Uh, <laughs> Does he? <laughs> and they, they, you know, they can't resist that Nazi occult uh, connection. <laughs> mm. But um, yeah, so so he was um, this young, romantic, uh, talented German who, um, in the 1920s, came down to the Languedoc area. You know, where you the Kappa country, where uh, you were saying you visited just a few weeks ago. Um, and he became involved with other esotericists who were there. And um, so that there was this um, indigenous tradition of esotericism that had developed since the 19th century. And arguably, who knows if it's true, arguably had, you know, these slender links back to the original Cathars. Uh, um, but there, so there are local people uh, like um, uh, Deodar Rocher, Rocher and... Uh, Antonin Gadal, who uh, who grew up in the area and became fascinated by the traces of the Cathars, 
And so um, Otto Rahn encountered these guys in the 1920s, and there are also other esotericists visiting from, you know, Italy and from England, and I mean, it's very well a hotbed of uh, esotericism. Uh, so, so he he had no money. He he was you know living off slices of bread and uh, borrowing money uh, from people, and you know occasionally he'd find somebody who'd act as a patron for a few weeks. Uh, and he he was wandering around the you know the hills and the mountains and the Cathar ruins and you know Montsegur, the uh, Castle where the Cathars effectively made their last stand in the Languedoc. And um, now the the idea that um, uh, Montsegur was linked with the Grail was uh, actually preceded him. And um, uh, you know the <coughs> the Grail romances were being written around the same time as the uh, the Cathars existed. And there was a German called a uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach, who wrote uh, one of the classic versions of the Holy Grail story, um, and he he had a Grail castle, which was called Mount uh, Salvatia, I think, uh, something like that. Uh, that got linked with Montsegur, um, and so all these all these things are connected together in a very very esoteric uh, myth making way. So. Um, so yeah, so uh, Otto Rahn managed to explore some of these caves, uh, which were, had already been connected by these the local esotericists to the Cathars, and uh, you, you know the Cathars did have to, have to hide out in places after the Inquisition uh, was started getting on their trails. So uh, we know that they hid out in woods and that kind of stuff. So it's not implausible that they hid in these you know cave systems in the Languedoc. Um, but then uh, Gadal and Rocher, they started finding uh, what they thought were wall paintings uh, left by the Cathars, and they had this idea that these caves were centers of initiation for the Cathars. And this, this actually continues to this day, that um, there's a society called the uh, Lectorium Rosicrucianum uh, that holds initiations there, and um, they had to done that direct connection with Gadal, and they had even had a kind of holiday camp uh, in the area where people would go down and stay there and get initiated and everything. Yeah, I saw that, and they're they're still discovering uh, Cathar crosses in caves, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah, Whether they were there some, in the first... Whether they're real or not is up, up to, for debate, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I did actually, I attended an introductory meeting by uh, the Irish offshoot of the... Uh, Lectorium, uh, and apparently the Bethlehem cave, I think, has been closed down by the authorities for being it's dangerous at the moment, so they can't use that. Uh, um, but anyway, so so Gadol wrote about he wrote a book called uh, Crusade Against the Grail, where he contrasts the uh, you know the Cathars were the protectors of the Grail, and then you know you had the Catholic Church uh, against the Grail and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of, and he he weaves in bits of Celtic mythology and everything. And um, it's actually not all that original. I was surprised to discover uh, most of the ideas preceded him and came from these other esotericists. But it has that uh, kind of aura to it, you know. Uh, it, can, it can kind of really spark your interest 
and you you know you start finding yourself wondering could it you know could it really be true you know and um, so so also Ryan was you know a very enthusiastic young romantic guy so th- this this book became moderately successful and he had uh, a message waiting for him uh, a benefactor would like to support him uh, would could he go up to Paris so he went up to Paris to this r- room in a swanky hotel and uh, of course the benefactor turned out to be Himmler who wanted to recruit him to the SS and uh, so apparently Rand said you know what how could I refuse Himmler you know <laughs> uh, this is down into the 1930s now so he got made a kind of honorary member of the SS and you know non-military member and he had lots of money available to go traveling around to ancient sites to research them and everything uh, but he wasn't to, you know, to his credit, uh, he didn't seem to be able to buy the the Nazi myth, and uh, there are a couple of anti-Semitic uh, references in his second book that some people suspect were actually got put in by the publisher. You know, um, but anyway, so he endured this for a while, and he it seems like Otto Rahn was gay, um, and uh, not as careful as he should have been within the. Uh, confines of Nazi Germany and things were getting difficult for him and uh, you, you know the, you know because part of the kind of stuff that they wanted Rand to come up with was the justification for the master race you know on that. Um, and he wasn't turning up with the goods for that uh, so eventually in 1939 um, he made his way to uh, mountaintop in Austria spent the night there and died of exposure oh really what what did they want him to come up with in terms of justification for the master race? Well, um, anything, I think. <laughs> uh, the, you know, this is a very important part of what the Nazis were doing. You know, like there's also this story, they, there was an expedition off to Tibet where they thought they could find uh, you know, ancestors of the white race and everything. They just looked for justifications you know, to weave a story where you could show that uh, anything, you know, good had to have been white, you know, and uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, um, but, you know, just a, a mythic underpinning uh, of what was going on there. So, um, I, I mean, in a way, the, um, you know, the crusade against the Grail, that gave... Uh, like for, for example, uh, there's one thing I remember from his diaries, which were published in um, his his second excerpts were published in his second book. Uh, there were people called Kagos who were this kind of um, underclass spread throughout France. They had different names, different places, and they're very much a mystery. They they only they married within their own families um, a lot of the time they weren't allowed to attend church inside church they would have you know the, the separate uh, windows outside the church where they would see they'd receive the host from the priest outside the church um, you know they would live in separate communities they would do kind of pariah jobs and that kind of stuff they were a pariah class basically and um, there, there, there is a kind of mystery where in the 16th century, I think it was, uh, the Kogos were pr- protesting to the 
Pope at their treatment. They say, you know, we are Catholics, we go to church, and we get treated like dirt by, you know, by all the other people. Um, and they said, you know, but we're actually the remnants of the Cathars who were destroyed in the Albigensian Crusade, you know, which is a very strange thing to say if you're trying to appeal to the Pope, you know, telling him that you're, you're not heretics. Yeah, and yeah. Maybe mm. scared of... Um, but um, so Otto Rahn said that he found Kago communities in uh, you know, the mountains. Uh, but the, these Kagos... And the, the, there's actually no consistent uh, physical characteristics between all the different groups of Kagos spread around France, as far as we can see, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, these Kagos were tall and blonde <laughs> and white, and uh, so they were obviously the Nordic... In, in this, you know, in this second book, they were the Nord, Nordic remnants of the Cathars uh, representing, you know, the kind of master race uh, who were put down by the Catholics, you know, that kind of stuff. So, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, it's just an illustration. Yeah, that's what I, that's why I'm asking. It doesn't sound to make a lot of sense. Why would they even need to connect with the Cathars? What would that represent? But if they were tall and blonde, I suppose. But if they're tall and blonde, why are they ostracized? Frankly. That's what I don't understand. Well, yes, well, they, they, I mean, they aren't. I mean, as, as I remember, there was one, they had small earlobes. That was one <laughs> legendary characteristic right. of them. I think they're a big mystery, you know, because um, they're, and, and, now, now, and now they've more or less disappeared, I think. They've just become integrated into communities. But there's still some people who, you can actually, I think I gave, gave a couple of references to newspaper articles in the book, Um there was an interview with uh, you know one of the surviving uh, Kagos, uh, you know, just talking about her family and that kind of stuff. How, how do you um, spell that name? Um, C A G O T S is the plural. Oh right, okay, okay. So that could be potentially related to the word Cathar. Who knows, right? Perhaps it's it's a mystery. Um, and you know, with with a lot of these, uh, it's a bit a little bit like the travelers in ireland um, right. uh you know so the travelers they were kind of linked with uh, gypsies and they were itinerants and um there used to be the story that i, I mean people wonder you know wondering uh if they you know were these people who came to ireland from somewhere else or the the legend about them used to be when um oliver cromwell with the English army came over and, you know, was massacring people up and down Ireland in the 17th century. These were people who had lost their land under Cromwell and became itinerants. And they, you know, so they were working as, and they still are, they're still a community. I mean, a lot of them are settled now, um, but they still work commonly as uh, scrap dealers or horse dealers. Uh, you see in Dublin, people riding horses up and down the street from, from traveler backgrounds. And they used to be called tinkers, uh, but tinker is a, just a profession, you know, somebody who works with tin. So they, they used to go around the, from door to door and, you know, people have their pots and pans repaired uh, by them as well. Uh, so so there's a certain amount of, of prejudice against them and also, but also they're part of the community, you know. So the, sto the story about them, people thought was that, you know, they got uprooted by Cromwell and, but the, Recently, they were doing some DNA testing, and um, you know they're more actually more Irish than most Irish people. They they 
you know, the, from what they can find of what DNA reveals is they, they seem to go back to some of these royal families uh, from Ireland. So uh, Yeah, that, that makes sense because if you see Irish gypsies, they do look completely blue-eyed and Irish as it could possibly be. And you see them in England too as well. Um, and they, you said that the, you mentioned DNA tests. They did do DNA, DNA tests on gypsies throughout Spain and I guess the rest of Europe, and they determined that they are a... They are descendants of a Dravidian uh, sect of Hinduism, basically. So um, if they didn't yeah, so find that same... If, oh, sorry? Yeah. Sorry, um, the, um, the language, you know, what Romani, as you call it in, in English, is it's Indo-European and, you know, closely related to Indian languages. Yeah, yeah so, so, the, um, so these Irish so-called gypsies, you're saying that they're comparable to the cargoes basically well I'm, I'm saying that the uncer- um, uncertainty of their origins uh, and everything is similar to that of the cargoes I, I don't I don't know right. you, I, I don't know how much research has been done into the cargoes in France uh, so you, you know so this, the stories about them might actually completely misrepresent them or you, you know we, do, we don't know um, that's the interesting thing about them. Uh, so I was just, I was just giving as an illustration how you know the, the stories about Irish travellers uh, uh, would might you know may in turn, sometimes be be correct, but uh, you know they're uh, they're very much Irish people who go back all the way. Yeah. Well, your your illustration actually does kind of provoke questions in my mind as to whether there's any validity to um, Himmler's search for, you know, some sort of link <laughs> to these, <laughs> to these potentially in his eyes, Aryan peoples, you know, who knows? We don't know, do we? <laughs> no, no. Uh, and every, I mean, everything's very mixed up, particularly yeah. in France, because you, you have, you know, the, the Celtic speaking Gaulish tribes, and then you have Goths coming down and then you have the Mediterranean links. And then, you know, there were, like in Lyon, there were Greek-speaking communities in Lyon during the Roman period, and it's all very. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to discover with the, you know the DNA evidence. Uh, I think, uh, and then, then you can, you know, I'm a, a definitely not a racist, uh, and I think race gets pretty much can be pretty much deconstructed itself, you know, but there, DNA shows interesting things about, um, how we relate to other people, you know, and stuff. Uh, so there's a new yeah. way of looking things and you can find esoteric ways of understanding that as well, that don't have to do with racism or you know, white supremacy or whatever. <laughs> well, I'm not, yeah, don't, don't worry about that. I'm not, I'm not overly, I think that people are becoming a bit desensitized to, or are just less fearful of even, being labeled racist, frankly, you know, so I don't, I'm not sure that that necessarily needs to play into it all. And I think that what you're saying about the DNA studies and the DNA studies that were conducted on the gypsies, that, that, that is ethnically important and socially important. And, and, um, it's not that we necessarily need to use those, that information, um, against anybody or to perse- persecute anybody, but it could explain certain things, couldn't it? So, you know, maybe it could yeah, be sure. beneficial. 
That's great. So, um, so your your newest book is the Lost Teachings of the Cathars, uh, and it's their beliefs and practices, and that's belie- that's uh, available on Amazon. And then you're also writing a book. Can you say the name of your new book again? Uh, John the Baptist and the Last Gnostics. Sounds fantastic. Um, yeah. So if people want to find out more about you, where's the best place to go on the internet? Um, well, I have a website, andrewphillipsmith.com. It's all one word, and there are two L's in Philip. Um, also, I, I don't think I mentioned it, but I've been, over the past few years, I've been editing and publishing a kind of journal, The Gnostic, which has a wide range of stuff related to Gnosticism. Um, uh, so it's articles by uh, practicing Gnostics and by scholars and interviews with all sorts of people who are interested in Gnosticism, every, every day from Alan Moore, the, who writes graphic novels, to, uh, to scholars, to uh, Gary Lachman, who writes about esotericism and uh, you know, a wide variety of people. Um, so there are six issues of that, and each of these is a kind of a big, a large format, 200-page slab of Gnosticism <laughs> for you to get your teeth into. And there are book reviews, articles, stories, even the odd comic strip. Um, so, um, so, uh, so there's a website, uh, the-gnostic.com, to go along with that. And uh, also, I, I'm a small publisher, too, uh, and I have Bardic Press, uh, the website for that is B-A-R-D-I-C-P-R-E-S-S dot com. Thank you for listening to jessiewar.com. We hope that you have enjoyed this program and found it informative. Stay tuned and check back each Friday for a new episode. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jessiewar and follow us on Twitter at jessiewar, all one word. Farewell until next time.